Lord God, as we come to your scripture this morning and reflecting on it, we trust that your Holy Spirit is the one who inspired Paul as he wrote to the the Philippian church a long time ago now. And we pray that just as your Holy Spirit inspired him, that you'd stir in our hearts and our minds and enable us to hear your word and to put it into practice. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Evelyn and I moved, after four years of marriage, from Switzerland back to Southern California, that was a huge change for us. It entailed all kinds of culture shock that we had not anticipated. We had been serving in student campus ministries in Switzerland, and we moved back. And when we moved back, we didn't have a job. We didn't have money. We didn't have prospects. About this time you're thinking, so what's changed? (laughs) Just kidding. I didn't have a car. We didn't have a church. We had simply stepped out in faith because we believed that God was calling us to go into ministry full time and long term and to enter Fuller Seminary and begin the preparation process. We did have a one-year-old baby. We did have the conviction that God would be with us no matter what the challenges ahead. So we moved back and we spent a little bit of time with my parents in Sacramento, spent a couple weeks and tried to get everything ready for seminary. We found an apartment over the phone, some student housing, and uh, we were pleased with God's provision. We got a car. It was a great big, huge old tank of a Chevy Caprice. We got the tiniest U-Haul they had, had all of our stuff crammed into it. And we drove down to Southern California. When we got to Pasadena, we were on the 210 freeway and we saw, we were looking at our directions in one hand and we said, oh, there's the Orange Grove Boulevard exit. And so we got off there and started to drive south. We drove and we, we saw the beauty of these old turn-of-the-century craftsman homes, the stately homes of the green manicured lawns. We saw the Norton Simon Museum on the left, and on the right was the Wrigley Mansion. And it was so beautiful, I wanted to weep. And I thought, wouldn't this be just like the Lord? Such beauty. (laughs) All of a sudden, I noticed something on my directions. I said, hey, wait a minute. We're looking for Orange Grove Boulevard North. This is Orange Grove Boulevard South. So we turned around and I kind of brodied the trailer around and we headed a mile north and we came to the freeway and we rose up above it and swooped down and we descended into the ghetto. (laughs) There were burnout cars and there were gangland graffiti everywhere, a liquor store on every corner, windows were boarded up and man, it was a spooky looking place. Cars would go by blasting loud enough to break your windows all of a sudden, we found our apartment complex, and we went inside, and we were greeted by our landlady, and the first thing she said was, oh, sorry, the fumigators are going to come tomorrow. <laughs> so we went in there and uh, opened the door. They had fans running, and, and uh, in all of that heat, everything had been unloaded from this furnished apartment, and dishes stacked all over in the living room, and the first thing we saw when we looked in was hundreds on the walls and on the ceiling and on the floor, hundreds of cockroaches. It was so devastating. 
fact, Ev- Evelyn, Evelyn sort of moaned and she said, I want to go home. And I said, honey, I got news for you. <laughs> we are home. <laughs> I know, Mr. Sensitive. Well, that was not an auspicious beginning, let me tell you. That was a, it was a discouraging time. And if you had asked me right then, was I excited about the claim and the call of God on my life? <laughs> In the place that he had called us to be, I don't know what I would have said. But a month down the road, we had made our peace. After all, we stuck it through because we had the conviction that God had called us. And that he was in charge of this. And even the the hard circumstances weren't random, but that he was working in it. God had prepared a place and an experience for us. And who would have guessed at the beginning that that dismal apartment would have ended up becoming for us because of the people God led into our lives? It would have ended up becoming a place of great joy. And uh, we spent some of the best three years of our lives in those next three years there. Was I excited about being there? No, I wasn't. But God was in it. God was at work. You know, I think the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Philippi, the writer of the book we're looking at this morning, I think he'd affirm that that's God's way. That God works through circumstances. And you know what? The church that Paul wrote to was not a perfect church. We know that for a couple of reasons that come out in the letter. First of all, that there was some kind of conflict that Paul refers to. Some kind of conflict taking place in the church. So it was not a perfect bunch of people. They were very everyday Christians, just like us. The second reason is that Paul refers to some false teachers that were stirring things up in the church, and he has some sharp words for them in chapter 3. But it was a church that was dear to Paul. And he felt real affection for this group of Christians. You know what? In the same way, the Apostle Paul's circumstances, even in his own life, his circumstances were far from perfect. And in fact, he wrote this letter from a a Roman jail cell. Paul had dedicated his life to sharing the good news of Jesus of the liberating news of the gospel at what happens when Jesus gets a hold of your life. His dedication, his passion had been to spread the good news of Jesus and to start churches across the Roman Empire. And now his active ministry was on hold. It was shut down. He'd been set aside. But the remarkable thing about this letter is that even to a very imperfect church and from an apostle with very imperfect circumstances, the letter is filled with a, a sense of unshakable confidence in God. It's filled with joy and the word appears several times through the pages of this letter. You see, Paul had learned to trust God's work, to trust his care no matter what. He had peace. In God's provision. Bruce preached about it last week. The sense of peace comes through all through the book. And it's reaffirmed here in this week. He had peace in God's provision. His circumstances were far from perfect. But Paul trusted God. And so he could be at peace. 
Well, Paul is touching on the secret of the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life is this, that when we surrender to God, no matter what our circumstances, we get fulfilled like we never can by trying to do that on our own, by trying to satisfy ourselves and live for ourselves. After all, that's what our Lord promised His disciples. He says this, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will find it. And he says this, ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. And Jesus goes on to say this, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Have it to the fullest. That's his promise. And that's what the Apostle Paul discovered. That when God's at the center, we find contentment no matter what our circumstances. When God's at the center, we find joy. We find peace. That's why Paul was confident. He was confident about his life and he was confident about his friends in the Philippian church. He trusted that the Lord who began a good work in you, as he says, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And that confidence comes through the whole letter. Look how Paul asserts his confidence in the goodness and the care of God. In chapter 1, Paul tells us to be passionate for Christ. To be passionate for Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean by that? He says, whether I live or whether I die, it's all about Jesus, and we can put our trust in Him. Regardless of the circumstances of our life, regardless of the opposition we run into, Paul says that sharing the gospel is a source of joy. Share the gospel, and you'll know the happiness that only comes from belonging to God and from serving His purposes. As we reach out to others for the sake of Jesus, that we'll begin to know this same kind of confidence and sense of purpose and even joy that the Philippians knew and that Paul knew even from a jail cell. An overflow of joy. So chapter 1 is all about being passionate for Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 is about serving one another. Paul tells us, serve one another. Chapter 2 has that famous passage, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the humility of Jesus, the servant heart of Jesus. He humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant. And Paul goes on to talk about him being poured out like a drink offering. Paul will pick up this image again in the end of 2 Timothy. But to be poured out is suggesting like that Old Testament temple sacrifice and you could offer a voluntary sacrifice of a drink offering. It was poured over the altar's offering to bring a pleasing aroma. What Paul suggests is I want to spend myself and my energies on behalf of the Lord. That's his great call on my life. Paul knew that he might well be coming to the end of his career, maybe even facing death for the sake of the gospel. And that's what he suggests with this pouring out kind of image. But Paul says, serve one another. He didn't see that as some kind of 
tragic accident outside of God's control. Instead, all of the days of his life, all of the resources of his life, all of the history of his life was about serving Jesus. And God was in control. So Paul says, serve one another. He joyfully submitted to God's purposes in him, even as he neared the end, it seemed. In chapter 3, Paul tells us to be spiritual, to be spiritual in our perspective. That's where he warns against the false teachers. Believers were to guard against the false teaching that put anything in the place of the good news of Jesus. He says, don't try to measure up through fulfilling the law. Don't try to measure up by being a super Christian or a hero. Instead, simply rely on the goodness and faithfulness of God. Trust and obey. That's what it's all about. Salvation comes through Jesus alone, not through our own effort. And Paul calls them to trust this again. In chapter 4, Paul tells the Philippians to be content. To be at peace. Now how could Paul possibly find contentment in the midst of such tough circumstances? It wasn't through force of will. It wasn't through his own strength. But Paul says clearly, I have learned the secret of being content. How do we do that? Does that sound good to you? It does to me, and yet often I struggle with that. How can we learn contentment no matter what the circumstances? Well, some would say it's by being self-sufficient. That way you don't have to worry about anybody else letting you down. In fact, the word Paul uses here in the Greek suggests a kind of intense self-sufficiency. Is that what he's getting at? The Stoics in Paul's own day said that's what it's about. You learn not to depend on anybody else. You learn to subjugate all of your desires. And in the end, that's the way to fulfillment. So if somebody steals a brush of yours, one of your possessions, for instance, then you simply say, well, I don't care. Something bigger happens. Something, somebody cheats you out of your job or you lose your house. And the stoic response is simply to say, I don't care. Somebody precious to you dies. And your response, you need to train yourself, the Stoics would say, to simply respond, I don't care. So we're utterly unperturbable. Is that what it's about? A lot of people in our day have that kind of philosophy, whether it's thought through or not. A part of that might be denial, but there are even those who, who would say, well, that's, that's just your fate. Or that's karma. You can't do a thing about it. We're just subject to the great forces of life. Is that what Paul's talking about? <laughs> Not at all. Yes, Paul was proud of his ministry. He was proud of his independence. He says elsewhere, I don't want anybody to be able to deprive me of this boast that I provided ministry free of charge. Paul is pleased about that. He's proud of his independence, but he's not self-sufficient. He's Christ-sufficient. And he says here, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul came to understand his utter dependency on God, not himself. He says, I will learn contentment through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
Paul knew that God had a plan and a provision for him. Does that sound good to you? It sure does to me. To be able to know that no matter what the circumstances, that God is at work in my life. It's in the times of crisis and trouble that I need that more than ever. It's then that I need contentment. It's when the job fails or if I wonder whether I'm going to be able to measure up. It's when a relationship fails or somebody fails me and disappoints profoundly. Or maybe when I disappoint somebody else and I'm deeply disappointed in myself. It's in those times that I need a new beginning, a fresh start with Jesus. I'd like to be able to rejoice in the Lord always, to constantly be at peace with Him. But I don't always measure up. Why is it sometimes that we miss out on the contentment, on the peace that God has in mind for us? Well, it's because I think we worry about the wrong things. The Bible uses the term to be anxious here. And the term be anxious literally means to be torn apart. Worry comes when we're concerned about the wrong things, torn apart by thoughts and feelings that move in different directions. We brood and we go round and round and realize that we're far from the contentment that Paul talks about. And that can happen to me. That can happen with me to bolt awake in the middle of the night when I'm stewing over something and work an issue over and over again. And I'll finally just cry out, Lord, relieve my mind of these things. So how do we find that contentment? Well, notice here in chapter 4 that Paul doesn't worry about people. He doesn't worry about circumstances. He doesn't worry about money or material possession. And here's why. He doesn't worry about people because he has such a passion for Jesus. After all, if Jesus is your number one priority, then that frees you not to have to worry about pleasing people, but instead to love people and to care about them. But there's only one that we have to please, that's Jesus. So develop a passion for Jesus. And you won't have to worry about people. You'll be freed to love them like Jesus does. Paul didn't worry about circumstances because he knew that God was in control. The third thing is Paul didn't worry about money because he had a spiritual mind. He understood that God is the great provider, that he's able to take care of me. He prevails over all of my needs. That's why Paul could be at peace. And that's why he tells us to have a secure mind. Be anxious in nothing, he says, but in everything with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If you do that, then with Paul, you can learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. When you're at peace, then people and circumstances and possessions and money, they don't make you lose perspective. Well, two more words that I want us to think about today, just briefly. First, God is powerful. This is chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Paul never gives in to a mentality that he was the victim of circumstances. He had the secret of peace. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If we depend on our power, we're going to end up frustrated. 
and we're going to fail. But if we depend on His strength, we're going to be lifted up and we can do all things through Him. That explains why Paul can rejoice, even from the confines of a prison cell. He was at peace because he trusted in the power of God. So, the first is God is powerful. The second is God provides. It's so easy to worry about things. Sometimes I think our possessions own us instead of the other way around. Paul had learned that God was able to take care of him, so he was at peace. He knew God was in control. He trusted in the provision of God. That God was able to meet every need. That's what enables us to live contentedly, whether in plenty or in want. Whether God brings along the treats of life, that's wonderful, we can thank Him and enjoy them. Or whether we're in need. In all of this, Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And you know what? That enables us to be generous with other people, too. It's the very best way to live. I think of this as we come up on our 50th anniversary soon and with our new sense of the Lord's leading in the area of Jubilee. We're able to be a Jubilee people, a people who live with wild abandon, with generous spirits. We're able to do that when we know God's in control. It's the very best way to live. Friends, that's the secret of contentment for the Christian. No matter what the world dishes out, no matter what the circumstances, whether in times of plenty, whether we're dealing with the cockroaches of life, that the Lord is faithful. By the way, our one-year-old did survive. She did very well. She just graduated from high school. Uh, two weeks ago, and in the fall, she's heading to University of St. Andrews in Scotland. So we're very excited for her. The Lord has been faithful in our lives. And we're able to say, along with the Apostle Paul, we've learned the secret of contentment, no matter what the circumstances. If you can do that, then your life is open to all the possibilities of God. And you'll see that He is faithful and good. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that uh, through all the circumstances of life, you are there. That you are neither surprised nor dismayed by any of the challenges that come along. And Lord, we ask that because of that, you would anchor that truth in our minds and our hearts so profoundly that we're able to be at peace. We want to learn along with the disciple, with the Apostle Paul, to really follow, to really trust and to be content in all circumstances. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.